0: creating cultural awareness and understanding. This is Culture Click. Culture Click is written and produced by KQAL FM on the campus of Winona State University.
1: Today on Culture Click, we take you to Nerd Night to hear from philosophy professor David Speetsen. Speetsen will give a talk on Christianity and the conceptual evolution of the just war. I'm Willard Hike. This is Culture Click on KQAL. I'm Willard Hike here at Nerd Night at Ed's No Name Bar here in Winona. I'm with David Spitson. How are you doing, David? Oh, I'm doing great, Willard. Thanks. Awesome. So tell me a little bit about what you spoke about here tonight.
0: Well, I was looking with a historical perspective at war in Christian thought. So we start talking about Jesus, and Jesus is occasionally confusing pronouncements this way and that, saying... Um, blessed are the peacemakers turn the other cheek and then you have incidents of Jesus chasing people around a temple trying to kick them out and saying he came to bring the sword uh, and division um, put against the backdrop of the Old Testament this is a confusing set of Moral principles for early Christians and later Christians to try and deal with, uh, while at the same time they're becoming more politically powerful. Uh, and so I was talking about some of the major moves and developments in the series of events that led to the morality of war that we recognize today and that underwrites international law.
1: So, what got you interested in, in, the, in that topic of the, I think the two Jesuses? Is that the word you used for in that concept? Yeah. Well, I was
0: interested in war from an early age, um, and I was raised Catholic and went to a Catholic school, but it was also a Catholic military school, and so I was a thoughtful kid and was always wondering about how to square this idea of violence with Christianity. that sort of, that interest faded for a while, but when I started studying the, started studying ethics and the ethics of war in graduate school while the Iraq war was going on, I got interested in uh, the morality of war. And then now, as I'm teaching at Winona State, I've become much more interested as a result of teaching this course in the just war tradition. I've become much more interested in the historical story about how it is that we came to these moral ideas that we have today. And so it's a nice, you know, coming full circle from early David to David now.
1: Now you're a professor here at Winona State. Tell me a little bit about what you teach here.
0: I'm a professor in the philosophy program and I'm the director of the complex studies program. So most of the courses that I teach are on philosophical ethics. I do courses uh, called Moral Problems, I teach the Philosophy of Law, Uh, but most importantly to this talk, uh, I teach a course called Introduction to War, Peace, and Terrorism, and a course called The Just War Tradition, which are both contemporary and historical looks at the morality of warfare, strategy, history, and the causes of war.
1: Awesome. Well, David, I really enjoyed the talk, really interesting content. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome, and thank you.
0: David, take it away. <laughs> all right, thank you, Carl. Uh, can everyone hear me? Okay, it sounds a little tinny in my ear, but uh, all right. okay. So, um, I gotta say, most of the time when I'm talking about the just war and I'm talking about Jesus and Christianity, I'm talking to a classroom full of students who are well aware of my various, you know, biases and whatever. And it's a little freaky talking about Christianity in front of a public audience because I don't know if there's some you know, nutcase Christian out there who, like, knows this stuff backwards and forwards and is going to, like, come at me with with questions that I can't answer or, or whatever. Um, so just, uh, if you have questions or if I say anything wrong, you know, hey, let's talk about it. Let's be friends. So, okay, so from Jesus to the just war, uh, I want to say a word. Everyone knows who Jesus is, but uh, I want to say a word about that concept of the just war. Um we throw this word around you might have heard terms like just cause or you know there was an operation just cause back in the the 90s the united states was titling operations after this um you have uh, but the basic idea of the just war is that there's rules there's moral rules i'm an ethicist and this is like my main deal is talking about the ethics of war and uh, it took a good 2500 years uh, for human civilization to come around to eventually the the kind of laws and rules that we have governing warfare today, there's certain criteria you need to meet before you can wage a justified war, and when you're fighting war, there's certain things you can't do, like you know attack civilians, or at least you ought not to do. Um, and the theory of the just war, this this kind of morality that we we. You know, we're steeped in these days. We talk about proportionality and the last resort and whether or not it's necessary and the probability of success. There's all these criteria. um, But that didn't just drop out of the sky. Um, And in my studies of the just war, I gradually became much more interested in the history of why this came about. And it's impossible to avoid Christianity when you're looking into the history of the just war. Because it turns out, the genealogy of where this idea came from and where our, our, our international laws came from, if you trace it back far enough, it winds up, like a lot of things uh, uh, in Western culture does in Europe in uh, during Christendom, and goes all the way back to Jesus. Uh, my interest in this subject goes uh, back a long way. Uh, like many young boys, I was very interested in war, and shooting, and playing guns with my friends, and stuff like that. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, I went to middle school and high school at an all-boys Catholic military school that religion sort of entered this fervent mix of uh, aggression, and anger, and interest in war. Um, so we talked there, right? There's yes. a little David Speaking. That's my graduation portrait. Uh, and you can see here, maybe just barely, you can see my I qualified as an expert, in, my expert marksman as a 22 in our school's rifle range down in the basement in the military wing. Um, we took classes in how to do map reading. and the way that was pitched to us was in case you need to call in a missile strike, you need to learn how to use the six digit coordinates to tell people where to fire the missile. And then in the other part of the building, we were learning about Christianity and Catholicism and Jesus and and all this other stuff. And for a thoughtful kid, this was very, you know, sort of perplexing to me. How did these two ideas go together? How are we all, you know, Christians? And and then we go downstairs and practice shooting things and marching around in uniforms and stuff like that. So this has been an area of long-term interest for me. Uh, And now I teach classes in the ethics of war and uh, have found new reasons to uh, study Christianity even though not really Christian anymore. So, from Jesus to the just war, the first thing we're going to talk about (laughs) about is the two Jesus problem. And actually this is an entree to the two Jesus problem. This isn't the real problem, but I do want to say a word uh, about this. A lot of people, when they're thinking about Christianity, and I think a lot of Christians, quite frankly, uh, have a very sort of simple idea of Jesus. They, They read about what Jesus said and they kind of strip away the parts that they don't like in order to get us a more simple picture of who this person was and what he thought. And that's not unusual, that's been going on for all of history, and I'm going to show you a little bit of that in the talk tonight. But for me personally, I like my Jesus complicated. I like Jesus in the Bible as represented. There's a bunch of different stuff. So I think that we should prefer complicated if a little bit threadbare and difficult to interpret Jesus as opposed to, you know, poorly revised Jesus (laughs) that doesn't really have much interest to it. Um, The other thing I wanna say is that I'm, I'm a philosopher. I'm not a historian and they're like, actual historians in this room. Um, And so to them in particular, but to everybody else, I want you to know that my grasp of history trends more in this direction than this direction, okay? So just keep that in mind as I go through this. Now, the real two Jesus problem um, starts with uh, our peace-loving, friendly Jesus. And if you search for a picture, if if you Google image search, Jesus and lamb, I swear to you, you will come up with thousands of different results. There's all kinds of pictures of Jesus cuddling lambs. But the idea here, right, is Jesus is always pictured, uh, uh, when he's holding lambs anyway, as a, uh, a very friendly, loving, compassionate Jesus. This is the Jesus who said, blessed are the peacemakers. And he told Peter, put up thy sword. Those who live by the sword, die by the sword. Uh, And there are a number of references in earlier versions of this PowerPoint thing. I had, like, biblical quotes and all that crap. I pulled out, like, every frickin' quote that you can find in the New Testament of Jesus saying stuff like, Turn the other cheek. Don't resist evil, which seems pretty straightforward. Um, But it turns out there is um, another Jesus. Uh, We can see, yeah, you can see Jesus here. This is the famous, uh, let's call it an incident in the the temple where he's chasing out the moneylenders. (laughs) Woo! Yeah, yeah. So he's, <laughs> Jesus got mad uh, because we got mad because they're, you know, changing their money lenders in the temple, and he needs to chase them out. Now there's different translations of this verse. Of this verse, in in some of them he's got a whip that he's chasing yeah. with. In none of the versions does he actually hit anybody. But in this painting by Giotto, it certainly looks like he's winding up for it. <laughs> Although I gotta say, frankly, if you're Jesus in this case. I think this is the pacifist right here because he's got his hand up. Jesus is going in face first. This is not the way to chase people out. Like, I don't know, you can't see here, this guy has his fist clenched. I think Jesus is about to get decked, but not really. In the story, he chases them all out and everybody's afraid. Uh, And you also find Jesus not just getting mad at people and chasing them around, you also see Jesus saying things like, do you think I came to bring peace? No, I came to bring the sword. It came to bring division. Now, this is a complicated picture. And if you're early Christians who are taking all of this stuff very seriously, even the minutia of what Jesus did, this to Jesus problem is a serious problem for you. It's a little bit, maybe not inconsistent, as 2,000 years of scholarship has shown. There's plenty of different ways to try and make what Jesus said and interpret things so that it comes out consistent. But there is a tension between peace-loving, resist-not-evil Jesus and Jesus who's about to pop this guy in the face, okay? So we've got a problem here, and the problem seems complicated enough, but early Christians weren't just looking at Jesus, right? Jesus was coming out of a long theological tradition of Judaism, which has things has all kinds of terrible, awful things going on in the Old Testament. And again, I was tempted to just put chapter and verse up here of a dozen different incidents where God seems to be killing off millions of people at once, where God orders people to kill off millions of people at once. But I decided to just go with one. The picture here is of the fall of Jericho. And consistent with the portrayal of Israelite violence in the Old Testament, what you have foregrounded is the Israelites blowing horns, carrying the Ark of the Covenant around the city of, uh uh-oh, my battery is running low. Someone's trying to quiet me down. So here's the fall of Jericho, and uh, you can see here, these are uh, seven selected priests who are blowing horns. They walk around the city, and they do that for seven days, and on the seventh day, they do it seven times. They walk around the city of Jericho blowing their horns, and on the seventh day after they do this, the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. do do do, do. and what happens after that? Does anybody know?
1: They open the, open the open door. everyone. They rush
0: into the city, and they kill every man, woman, and child in the city. Do, 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 do. Right, so now the way this is portrayed in this painting and in the Old Testament is as glorious conquest, but it struck early Christians and probably strikes most people today as kind of out of the keeping of the spirit of the New Testament. So really, the early Christians weren't just dealing with this to Jesus problem,
1: they, were, they had a very complicated picture
0: to try to make consistent, right? And. What we see uh, over the course of 2000 years is various ways of trying to square this circle, of trying to make it come out and try to understand how all of this stuff can be true and consistent with theology all at the same time. So, Let's talk about early Christianity. These are the boring pictures, nicer pictures are gonna come up. but I've got a series of figures here. and I just wanna go very quickly through these guys. Uh, we don't actually, one of the interesting things about early Christianity is that they did not write all that much about war or violence at all for the first few hundred years in Christianity. It's simply war was not really an issue. For the first 100, 200 years, Christianity was a very small, insular group of people Who were living very peaceful and largely contented lives as a a, a persecuted minority in the Roman Empire? Um, Now, in the space of about 300, 350 years, Christianity went from being this tiny little cult to being the official uh, religion of the Roman Empire. And at the same time, you had early Christians trying to adjust their worldview, early Christians are very much concerned with the Christian community and how should Christians deal with this problem of being a minority in a world that's hostile to their ideals, but as Christianity becomes more, uh, more popular, they start running into a very particular, very specific problem, which is that there's a ton of soldiers in the Roman military, and many of them want to convert to Christianity. But if it means giving up your post, giving up this great job as a Roman soldier, then they don't want to become Christian. That means their children, their families don't become Christian, that means you're losing out. At the same time, as the Roman Empire was becoming Christianized, Christianity was at the same time becoming Romanized. Uh, And what we see is a gradual trend. The cynical view of this, of course, is that They were seduced by politics to give up their initial pacifist inclinations, but it's not quite that simple. So, uh, I wanna start off with uh, Justin Martyr. That last name isn't a coincidence. Justin Martyr, writing uh, in the early second century, early to mid second century, is very clear in saying that we, Christians, have given up the sword. We who once killed each other no longer do. We've given that up. We don't hurt anybody. We don't, we, don't, we don't try and attack anybody. In fact, we're willing to die before even lying to the people who are persecuting us. We're willing to make the ultimate sacrifice in order to avoid such a minor sin as lying. How much more length should we go to to avoid having to kill people? Tertullian is writing a little bit later, and Tertullian uh, is one of the paradigmatic pacifists, but his beef with joining the Roman military wasn't that you might have to kill people, at least that wasn't what he was foregrounding in his explanation. The fact was that if you were a Roman soldier, you had to take an oath to the powers that be to obey them. And Tertullian said, you can't serve two masters. If you're a Christian, you can't promise to obey some earthly authority, especially not to go and kill people. But not only that, you got to get involved in all these pagan rites in the Roman military. So there's just this inherent conflict. So no, Christians shouldn't serve in the military. Now, again, it's a very specific question they're addressing here. Can Christians serve in the military? They're not interested in war yet. There's not enough Christians to wage a war yet. By the time we're getting to uh, Origin uh, and some other folks, uh, things start getting a little bit more complicated uh, because Roman authorities now, some of them have become Christian, um, and uh, it's clear, right? Origin too uh, does think, right? He he even says human life is inviolable, right? Christians should not take life, but at the same time he says. There's injustice going on beyond Rome's borders. And he was totally on board with Rome going out there, using war to stop the injustice from happening, which as a philosopher is a little bit weird to to read about because it seems like, well, look, if you're Christian and you think that everybody should believe the truth, that means you think everybody should be Christian. So doesn't that mean you think everybody should refrain from violence? But that's not how Origen was thinking about it. He was thinking about it in terms of, well, um, there's this narrow group of Christians and we have to not participate in violence, and then there's these other people who maybe don't have such stringent moral obligations on them. Uh, Lactantius, uh, is, uh, he was a, a, a tutor to one of Rome's, the Roman Empire's uh, uh, children. He too uh, was all in favor of pacifism, while at the same time being in favor of the Roman military, using its, its, its force, using its lethal uh, capacity to, in, to establish justice and order, while at the same time allegedly espousing some kinds of pacifist views. So the view of Christianity on violence was sort of complicated from the very beginning. Now by the time we get to uh, Ambrose in the fourth uh, century and moving into the end of the fourth century, uh, we have a clear change. Now we have Christians not saying, well, you should be pacifists, but maybe it's okay for some violence to go on. Now you have Ambrose saying it's morally wrong for you to not intervene if you see someone being attacked. Even if you have to kill the aggressor, you should defend the innocent. Okay, And he referenced back to Moses who kills an Egyptian uh, uh, who was threatening uh, another Israelite. He kills this Egyptian. And so he says, look, just like uh, Moses, we need to stand in front of the innocent and use force uh, if necessary. Curiously, he thought that it was important for us to stand in front of other people and not let them get harmed, and we can use force in their defense, but he thought that, for reasons I have read this stuff and I don't really understand why he thought this, but he thought that it was, unnatural to use force in your own defense. Now, our next figure, uh, Augustine, there's Augustine, getting his mind blown. You can't read it from back here, but this is this is veritas. This is the light of truth. And as a philosopher, when I see this picture, I'm like, yeah, that's what it feels like. Go, Augustine. He probably didn't dress like this. Probably wasn't that white. Um, but uh, Augustine, uh, Augustine got credit for a lot of the just war, but he was much more of a systematizer than an originator. But here's what Augustine says, right? Augustine, Augustine finally squares this circle in a way that's gonna content Christians for about the next mm, thousand or so years. Augustine says, look, <clears throat> we live in a fallen world, and in a fallen world, there's two kinds of people. There's people who love themselves, and there's people who love God love yourself, you love other people because of what they get you. When you love God, you love other people because they're God's children or whatever. You have the uh, uh, the right motives. Now, Augustine was all about this inward sort of spirituality. For Augustine, whether or not we were justified in using force had a lot to do with our attitude while we were using force. What was crucial to Augustine he, in, in my mind, I always think of Augustine as accurately perceiving something that all Christians should be on board with. He thought, look, what happens to your body in this life really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. We're talking about eternity in heaven and hell. What happens to your body, whether you suffer, whether you experience pain, that doesn't matter. You need to keep your soul in line in order for you to get into heaven. That's what matters. It's not about life and death. It's not about avoiding pain, but because we live in a fallen world and there's all these selfish people around, the selfishness leads to sin. And if one thing was made clear in the Old and the New Testament, it's that sin needs to be punished. And particularly in a fallen world like this, we need to punish sin in order to establish peace and order. We need to deter future crimes by punishing people heavily for the crimes they commit, Uh, and uh, we need to make sure that uh, uh, wrongdoers in sort of the international sphere get punishment so we establish a norm that people don't attack other people. And if we're not punishing the wrongdoers, well, we're doing something wrong. So he thought a just war, he's not the first to use this term, but he was the first Christian to really address war from a Christian perspective, he says, This needs to be necessary. It needs to be something you have to do in order to punish injustice. Moreover, he said, he agreed with Ambrose in thinking that you can't use this force in self-defense. He thought there's no possible way for you to use this force in your own defense that wasn't selfish, that wasn't tied up with lust or self-love of some kind. And so you can defend other people, And you can use violence at the behest of some kind of authority figure, and you can do that without mixing up your motives. You can do that in a way that's consistent with Christian morality, uh, but you can't do it in self-defense. Finally, um, this question of authority, right? So Augustine thinks, look, if you've got some authority figure who tells you to use force in order to establish peace, it's possible for you to use that force without anger, without malice, without self-love because the command is coming from out you, you're doing it out of obedience. And as long as you're doing it in the spirit of wanting to punish sin and help sinners, then your spirit is fine or your soul is clean. Now, who are these authorities for Augustine? This is one of the issues that, well, of several issues, including this one about self-defense that's gonna have to get revised later on to mesh with people's ordinary intuitions. But he says, look, If God didn't want something to happen on earth, it wouldn't happen. So the people who are in authority, they're there because God wants them there, even if they're terrible. And so you should obey them, even when that, even when it seems like they're doing something that's unjust. You're not sinning because you're acting out the commands of authority, an authority you know is installed by God, otherwise they wouldn't be an authority. Uh, and so your soul is clean, even if you're doing terrible things to people that you know are unjust. It's the ruler or whoever's commanding this, this authority figure, he's gonna go to hell, but you don't have to worry about that, just obey. This turns out not to be a popular idea later on in, in, uh, in medieval times. So anyway, we, we wind up with uh, Augustine saying, look, you know, war is uh, a necessary evil in a fallen world in order to establish peace and justice. Um, and you need to obey the authorities that be, even if they tell you to do terrible things. And Augustine was well aware that war often resulted in civilian casualties. This was another thing that needs to get revised in subsequent years because Augustine's take on this, while well, it certainly doesn't gel to modern years, what he said was, well, look, I know that war kills innocent people, except, well, nobody's innocent, really. War is punishment, and in the same way that God ordains certain rulers, sometimes God puts bad rulers in place just to make sure other people get punished. And sometimes the punishment, right, it's a surprise. Like you committed adultery and now you're being slaughtered by foreign soldiers. That's what you get. And all the innocent people who got killed really weren't innocent, right? Nobody's innocent. And remember, we shouldn't be caring about whether we live or die anyways, because what you should really be caring about is your soul. So if you get killed and you're relatively innocent, well, the war, you know, punished you for your sin and now you're scot-free. Okay, so not a popular view on self-defense. If you can't use self-defense, that doesn't really mesh with what a lot of people believe, and there's some issues about non-combatant status that, uh, that need to get kicked down the road. So there's four different things that start coming together in the Middle Ages that like revamp what Augustine had set down. And Augustine's important as a systematizer. It's not super great on original ideas, at least on this stuff, but Augustine is like the leading light for you know the dark ages I know you know maybe lifespan increased. they weren't so dark from like a lot of different perspectives but man the dark ages in Europe anyway were dumb like the cultural output was just terrible like there's there's like a 500 year gap in interesting stuff going on in philosophy because of the dark ages people weren't literate everyone was dumb everybody was fighting all the time rome had collapsed and it had devolved into these tiny little communities and you get these uh, or smaller communities anyways and you get the rise of feudalism right for those of you who are not aware when we talk about kings and knights think warlords okay think like somalia in the 90s or something like that That's early Middle Ages. You have a bunch of guys who are heavily armed and lots of money and a bunch of serfs who work the land that they own who are fighting wars amongst themselves to get stuff that they want. At the same time that you have Rome sort of deteriorating, and now it it deteriorates and devolves to these localities but roman law is still going strong all of these empires and kingdoms that rise up after rome they're still basing everything on a roman legal system and so roman ideas of self defense roman ideas of licit war of an idea of some sort of international legality and of you know quasi respecting other peoples as people that have rights that survives a little bit but you also have, in addition to these secular Roman legal systems, you've also got now the church, right? Christianity has gone from being this tiny sect to being the church, and you have Christendom. And you have uh, all kinds of edicts and uh, pronouncements and theolo- early theologians writing, you have all the guys that I just mentioned, the early church fathers. All of this stuff that the church is using to sort of run what's called canon laws sort of like a federal legal system, kind of uh, running alongside the secular legal system. So like things involving murder, that was a church crime, not a secular crime. You got kicked off to the church and they figured out what to do with you then. Other crimes were like state crimes that were handled by the Roman legal system. And you had uh, one guy in particular, a guy named Gratian, not the emperor, a guy we know nothing about, who looked back at all the church fathers, all the church pronouncements, and for the first time, writes down, he says, what about war? Like, Augustine's writings on war had been all spread out. The early church fathers had just had a comment here or there. He's the first guy to say, this is a topic Christians need to worry about, and I'm going to go through and systematically work out a view that's consistent as far as possible with all of the other uh, church stuff and canon law that's come before. And that was a small part of a textbook that, within 20 years of him writing it, became standard canon law. In 1140, this textbook was published. You know when the church retired it? 1917, like this guy wrote a textbook that lasted for 900 years. I'm writing a textbook right now, if I can get this thing on the shelf for like three years and people are still buying it, I'll be happy. Okay, so we've got canon law, we've got some theologians, I don't want to talk too much about that. They're basically canon lawyers except sort of smarter and they got, they read some Aristotle. And then you got chivalry. Now, chivalry uh, is a a very old institution, and the way we think of chivalry now, we got the lady back here. We think of chivalry as this kind of, like, romanticism, but it didn't start that way. Chivalry was the warrior code of mounted, uh, heavily armed and heavily armored knights, and chivalry held up the virtues of toughness, essentially, constitution, right, being able to survive uh, on extended military campaigns and and not lose your health, Uh, loyalty, right, a bunch of military virtues get folded into this thing, along with, you know, don't kill peasants, not because they have some intrinsic view of life, but it's just not honorable to kill somebody who's unarmed, right, and so you get a little bit of non-combatant immunity from chivalry, but it eventually merges into, it eventually gets Christianized. Right? It eventually becomes a Christian institution where compassion and protection for the weak become central as well. And all these four elements sort of start coalescing in the Middle Ages until, we're going to skip forward 400 years just to do my final slide here so I can talk about. Uh, uh, I had uh, all those animations I put in, I Woo! skipped them in the talk. All right, Francisco de Vittoria. So we're skipping forward again another 400 years, but I wanted to get to this guy. He's my favorite, and then I'll leave you alone, and you can ask me questions. Vittoria got it right in history. When I thought about Europe in the 1500s, uh... during the conquest of the americas uh... and during, you know, spread, Europe was spreading its culture around the, road, uh, around the world mostly by force my idea was that everybody in Europe was just a freaking racist bigot but it turns out they weren't there was a lot of controversy reports right Francisco de was born in 1492, the year Columbus committed genocide or started and they uh, all these reports start coming back during Vittoria's lifetime He works himself up to a position uh, in the head theologian in the University of Salamanca. And what does he do? He uses his post to say, all of your justifications for killing the natives in in the Americas, for taking over their land, all of them are You don't have the right to wage war to try and convert people to Christianity. The Pope doesn't have the authority to acquire other people's lands you can't just do this kind of stuff. These people have dominion over their territory, regardless of what religion they are. And if they are killing us, for the most part, it's because they're afraid of us, because we attacked them first. And so if we're gonna fight them, it ought to be just in defense. We don't get to use them being afraid of us and fighting back as an excuse, and now we get to defend ourselves by killing all of them. No, Victoria got it right way back in the 1500s. And the fact that he got it right was really lucky, because this set future thinkers, right, he in a way secularized from within the Catholic Church this idea of the just war, and he made it suitable and adaptable to secular thinkers who came after him who were the authors, the original authors of international law, namely Hugo de Groot, or Hugo Grotius uh, worked uh, the, the so-called father of international law lots of times he was just cribbing off of Vittoria. So a lot of these insights that Vittoria had wound up being the foundation of our international legal system today. He thought that everyone, everywhere, was deserving of some kind of respect. Not a popular idea in Europe at the time, but he used his post at the University of Salamanca uh, to sell it. Um, I hope that just war theorists today can live up to that kind of uh, uh, standard in our criticisms of current cultural practices as well. Thanks for listening. Uh, You've been a great audience.
1: (laughs) Thanks again to David Spitson for joining us on this episode of Culture Click. To learn more about Minnesota culture and the community, visit KQAL.org. I'm Alert Hike. Thanks for listening. Creating Cultural Awareness and Understanding. You've been listening to Culture
0: Click. Support for Culture Click is made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Culture Click is produced by KQAL FM on the campus of Winona State University. For more information, look us up on the web at kqal.org. And thanks for listening to Culture Click. Do you want to know about all things Winona and the surrounding area? Tune in to Culture Click Thursdays at 1230 right here on 89.5 KQAL.
1: Culture Click is made possible by a grant from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.